Good morning. Thank you, Fran, for reading this morning. I think it's probably pretty obvious that if we were going to try to uh, walk through every last part of that passage, we would be here for a long, long time. Uh, so we, we aren't going to do that, but Ephesians, a letter written by Paul, uh, likely in captivity, has more to say about church than probably any of his other writings. Uh, this morning we want to talk, and the rest of this month, uh, why church? Why? And maybe you're asking that question as well. Uh, Stuart Briscoe says that church isn't somewhere we go, it's something we are. Church isn't some, somewhere we go, it's something we are. And I would add to that, uh, church is not meant, church is meant to be participatory, it's not meant to be a spectator sport. Um, my family had the fortune of going to a Jets game, I haven't been in three years uh, this uh, Friday, uh, but, uh, but our participation was pretty much spectator. Uh, we even went down to the glass to watch the warm-ups, and none of those guys asked us if we wouldn't want to help out. I'm not sure why. We look like hockey players, right? But no. A church is not a spectator sport. It's participatory. And, and we're really thankful for uh, the opportunity and the technology to be able to provide our service online, uh, live stream, uh, especially for those for health reasons or mobility reasons uh, can't join us. Uh, but if you're healthy and mobile and all of that, uh, but you've just gotten so used to sitting on the couch, I'd, I'd challenge you to maybe not miss out on, on, on what this is, the, the gathering, the, the body life. Uh, join us. So the obvious questions are, so what are we? And how are we doing? Well, number one, church existence can be fragile and tentative. It can be fragile and tentative. In fact, it's been said that the church is never more than one generation away from extinction. And that's why we have said that we want no generation missing. Now, of course, because our vision statement is all two words, we say grow young, but it's an acknowledgement that if we don't include and involve our younger generations, they're going to disappear. And so what we're saying is we want every generation involved, uh, we want it to be participatory because the church is only one generation away from extinction. Despite great growth and expansion in the first century, the seven letters written to the churches in Revelation, written some hundred years after Christ, seems to bear that out. It took very little time for that warning to be written. We have further examples that include the decline of the church in Europe. The church suffered moral and spiritual decay. And much of Paul's church planting activities in what is today modern Turkey, well, where's the church? And we could point to the North American church as well. Probably the idea of church as being somewhere we go is partly responsible for the decline, and there are other reasons. <clears throat> I'll give you a quick backdrop, and we go back to Constantine. Constantine, with the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, so 300 years after Christ, legalized the church and ended state persecution. And some of us would say, hooray, no more persecution. 
But there's also other spin-offs. Up until that time, believers had met in homes, and church was not somewhere you went, it was what you were. But because of the growth in numbers of believers, of course now the state religion is Christianity, Constantine initiated church buildings for gathering, making church somewhere you go. And you go once a week during a slot. There were fewer than 10,000 Christians at the close of the first century in the Roman Empire, so 0.017%. But by 300 AD, it is said that Christians numbered some 6 million or 10% of the population. So there was this amazing growth, but then also decline. Today, there's also a drift away from church attendance in North American, in, in North American context. And erosion of our belief system and spiritual disciplines follows after. Although we probably don't know to what extent as yet, it is likely that the two years of pandemic experience has also led to the decline in church attendance. I don't know that we're still aware of, of the total impact, but it has led to the decline. If church is somewhere we go, then it is somewhere we can also stop going. But if it is something we are, then we can't stop being what we are or only be it occasionally. If church is somewhere we go, to God's house, where we go to visit Him, then we can also leave Him in His house when we leave, going back to visit Him whenever we want. I don't think that's what God had in mind. So, whose church is it? Some might ask, if God is everywhere, then why do I need to go to church? That's a great question. I think Solomon spoke to that a bit in his prayer at the dedication of the temple, where he admitted that this house could never contain God. So already there's a clear perception that God isn't limited to our physical space. And yet Jesus said, when Peter made his amazing declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter said to him and to the disciples, I will build my church. But he wasn't talking about brick and stone. He was talking about a community of faith, about people. And Jesus saying, the church belongs to me, is evident here. He says, I will build my church. Not you and me. He says, I will build my church. And he also says, it's mine. It's not yours. I won't uh, slander anyone else this morning, but I, I am... I am miffed when I find out that, you know, a founding pastor in a particular church actually owns the church. To me, that's heresy. I'm sorry. If I'm being too blunt, too forthright, to me, that's heresy. The pastor doesn't own the church. In fact, you and I don't own the church. The church belongs to Jesus. And when he says, I will build my church, he's doing the building and it belongs to him. And that's pretty serious, actually. Only Jesus is capable of building his church, and it belongs to him. 
The church is God's idea. It belongs uniquely to Jesus, and only he is capable of building it. Let us not forget that. We can have vision statements. We can have good intentions. We can do all kinds of things. But if we do it in our own strength, we do it with our own wisdom, we do it with our own resources, and we forget that he owns it, it's his, and he's building it, and we come alongside and join him in what he's doing, we're in danger of losing our way. And Jesus follows that up and says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A pretty graphic description of death itself. It's a clear statement of fact and a promise. Even the death of Jesus later on would not stop this enterprise, nor the death of Peter or anyone else. None of us are indispensable as much as we might think that we are. And although the church is in decline in different parts of the world, and maybe some of us are looking at our world and panicking and thinking it's all going down the tubes, Jesus still says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is growing exponentially in many areas of the world. Jesus continues to build his church. And you and I have to ask ourselves this morning, uh, if, if the, the question came up in Sunday school this morning, is God thinning the herd? Uh, maybe we have to ask ourselves, are, are, we, are we in a right relationship with God? Are we submitting to his leadership and on his team? Or like Annie Dillard would say, are we, you know, mixing TNT on a Sunday morning to blow up the church? A quote by Annie Dillard about playing games. The church gains its identity and its purposes from Jesus and from the Holy Spirit that created it. So we have to be in constant communication and submission to Christ because he's the head of the church. Thirdly, the church is a called covenant community. You notice in the call to worship verse, as well as in what um, Fran read this morning, that word called came up many times. We are a called covenant community. The significance of the church and the purposes of God cannot be overlooked. Humanity's use of free will and open rebellion led to alienation and fragmentation. And God's redemptive activity to roll back the effects of the fall, well, his answer to alienation was salvation in Christ. His answer to fragmentation was the creation of a new community, the church. I think that's why Jesus prayed in, in John chapter 15 uh, for unity. Unity is so important. Ephesians 4, where Paul talks about unity, we are one. See, we can't go on and talk about diversity because we have different gifts. I can't play the bass like Mike can. I can't sing like Jacia. Um, we have different gifts. So there's diversity, but we're all rowing in the same direction. There's unity of purpose and calling. His answer to fragmentation is the creation of a new community, the church. <clears throat> Why is the community necessary? Can't I be a Lone Ranger Christian? What does it mean to be called into this community? And, and by the way, the word Trinity doesn't show up in Scripture, and yet the concept of the theology of Trinity is there, 
And, and God is a supremely relational being. And that's part of what's wrapped up in Trinity. And, and then he calls some of us to get married and function in the context of marriage. And that's a miracle. The two will become one flesh. Braden, making sure you're listening. That's also a, an amazing miracle. Relationship, intimacy, community. And then we're meant as a body of believers to live together in community. By the way, do you know why? I learned this long after the fact. See, the thing is, we do stuff and then we don't explain it, and then nobody knows why we're doing it. Do you know why in Mennonite churches they used to have the men sit on one side and the women on the other? Hmm? Raise your hand if you know. Oh, see? I'm, yeah. Okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. See, family units work together. Yeah? Family units work together, and they didn't want families to sit together in church because they wanted to affirm the brotherhood and sisterhood of you're part of this bigger family, so you don't get to just sit with your close-knit family, but it wouldn't work for me to sit with somebody else's wife. So how do we do this? Well, we make all of the men sit together here and all of the women sit together here. It had nothing to do with sex or any of that kind of thing. And I grew up thinking, oh, they're just trying to keep us apart. I don't know. There was a reason. And all these years later, I, you know, had a curator tell me that. Community is important. And, and it's an expression of God's nature when we live in unity. The Greek word for church in the New Testament is ekklesia. I usually don't spout Greek in the pulpit, but it's two words, a preposition ek meaning out of, and kaleo, which is a verb meaning to call. So ekklesia, the called out ones. And unfortunately, some people think of that as, oh yeah, we're called to live out of the world. Let's isolate, let's get in the greenhouse. We are the saved ones and all of those other heathen can stay out there. No, you're called out to prepare and be changed to go back in with a message, to witness, to love. So the question is, we're called out for what? And obviously, the other question would be, how are we doing? I was talking to Ike this morning. Sorry for bringing you up, Ike. I don't see him. He's taller than everybody, but I don't... Oh, there he is. Uh, his work up north. I mean, he doesn't live in a greenhouse. He's on the front lines all of the time. Wow, that's exciting. He doesn't have to pray for opportunities to be a witness. They're right in front of him all the time. That's great. We're called out to be a witness. Well, being part of the ecclesia, the called out ones, means both privileges and responsibilities. Just like being married has privileges and responsibilities. I'm going to charge them for marriage counseling later. <laughs> we, we are part of a local expression of the body of Christ. By the way, I didn't know this. This is all happening just spontaneously. They didn't put me up to this. We are part of a local expression of the body of Christ. You, yes, you're part of the universal body of Christ, but you, you can't... You have to also be part of a local expression of the body of Christ. And we enter into that voluntarily via a covenant commitment. Just like two people 
enter into a marriage voluntarily via a covenant expressed by vows. Boy, this is working so well today. (laughs) When you decide you want to be part of a local body of believers, you commit to that local body of believers, and we commit to each other, and we're there for each other. And we decide, I want to... I want to swim with this group. I want to work with this group. The church is a community of the called. And this requires a clear understanding of what it means to be called into a community and what is unique about being part of this community. And by the way, if you're looking for a perfect church, stop. Because when you get there, it won't be perfect anymore because you're there. There is no perfect church. And some of us go to church looking for a church that will meet all of my needs. So it's all about me. Instead of saying, Lord, where do you want me to put my shoulder to the wheel? Hmm? Very different. Very different. Part of the purpose of this community of faith is that of being ambassadors for Christ. Incarnating the message and the spirit of Christ. The body is the vehicle of the spirit, and the presence of the body makes it possible for the spirit to function in that geographical location. Let me say that again. The body is the vehicle of the spirit, and the presence of the body makes it possible for the spirit to function in that geographical location. Now, this is what I mean by that. Likewise, the church is the tangible, visible presence of Christ in the world today. So Jesus being 100% human and 100% divine, incarnation, God with us, Emmanuel, that's incarnation, big I. You and I as a church together, as the body of believers, we are incarnation, small I. And that is just so amazing In Ephesians 1, verse 22 and 23, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Our calling is in effect a summons, an act by God, or by which God in Christ brings people into relationship with himself and then uses this body to draw others to himself. How in the world could we fulfill Christ? But but what he's saying is that as we incarnate Christ, as Christ lives in us, we represent him to the world. That's, That's what he wants from the church. Just like Jesus represented God to us, being human and being divine, we as a church are meant to be ambassadors for Christ to represent him to the world. Well, finally, I think that this also impacts behavior. Calling impacts behavior. If we say that a church is a community of people that comes together based on shared beliefs, that morph into behavior that impact not only their coming together, but also have a profound impact on their scattering into the community in which they live, then our behavior is important. So we have these common beliefs, these shared beliefs, 
that influence our behavior, that impact the way that we live. And then we move out into the community where God has called us to be salt and light. <clears throat> our call to worship verse, Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, talks about walking worthy of the calling you have received. To be the church. And Paul continues to, by, by talking about community life and what it will take to maintain unity. And I think it's important that we recognize that this unity must be maintained, not manufactured. I think we maintain the unity, we don't manufacture it. I, I can't manufacture a car, but I can maintain it, I think. Part of maintaining unity is focusing on the seven things that believers have in common. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So Paul stresses what we have in common first. And you can pull up 59 different verses in Scripture where it says one another, one another. Describing what it means to live in unity as a community of faith, to live in harmony with one another. And in fact, the entire sweep of the Bible teaches that Christians in non-Christian environments are not to be worried so much about changing their environments as they are to remain faithful in whatever kind of environment they find themselves in. And that's a, that's a, tough, that's a tough deal. Am I not supposed to influence the world around me? And how do I do that? What kind of an influence am I? And, and I think the important thing is to stay the course and to be faithful. Personally, to be faithful. Christian teaching concerns Christian theology and behavior, not social institutions and how we can change them. Notice also in Ephesians 1, the passage that Fran read, that Paul says that the power that raised Christ from the dead is available to every Christian. The power that raised Christ is available to every last one of us. Now let that sink in for a bit. That's an amazing thought. And as I already mentioned, Christ is the head of the church over all things for the benefit of the church, which is his body. So that we can be his body. He is Lord. And the image of body here stresses his unity with believers and their unity with one another. Christians live in Christ and take their identity from him. But we have to live and walk together in unity. It is the church and its capacity as the body of Christ, as it is filled and guided with the Holy Spirit, that fulfills Christ by being his witness in the world. Incarnation. Our mission is to exalt the Lord, to evangelize the world, and to edify believers. So we work together to edify believers, to encourage, build each other up, and then to go out into our world and to share Christ's love with a world that needs it so badly. Why church, you ask? Why? Because it's God's ordained instrument for growth in discipleship to spiritual maturity and to reach the lost by mirroring Christ to the world.
a mirror in Christ to the world. I like to think of church with the analogy of hockey. You get together for practices, but practices really only have significance and meaning in light of the game that you're going to play. They are only a preparation for the game. And you're learning all kinds of skills like breakouts and how to pass, how to do everything that you need to do as a team with the idea of winning the game. And church is not a game. It's not a game. But the stuff that we do together should be focused on equipping, encouraging, motivating, identifying giftedness so that together as a team, we can effectively represent Christ in our world. And we all bring different gifts and abilities to the table. It's a wonderful thing. Why church? That's why. That's Jesus' game plan. And it's marvelous. Let's pray and I'll ask uh, Diane and Mo to come up to see if we have some Q&A. Heavenly Father, so much of your plan is just sometimes beyond our comprehension. It is amazing. You have created us for fellowship with you. And then we all went astray. And yet you orchestrated your wonderful and amazing plan of redemption to redeem what was lost, to restore us to fellowship. And you've also ordained and called the church, the body of believers, to live out their faith actively in a world that desperately needs a picture of Christ, that desperately needs the love of Christ. So this week, as we go into our world, wherever that may be. Lord, help us to remember our calling. Help us to pray for one another, support one another, and then help us to be salt and light, to love our neighbor, and to be church in the world. We ask this in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. Got to give him a moment. There's nothing yet. But what came to mind to me was John 17, Jesus' prayer that said, I don't pray for you, Father, to take them out of the world, but keep them safe in the world. And I think we need to, the whole John 17 was, the world will know we are his by how we love each other. And we need to get better at loving each other so that the world will see the Jesus that's in here. Well, this, this week as I was, uh, I, I got to start a new job this week. Uh, whew, I don't envy people who start new jobs. Um, it's a lot of stuff to take in. But one of the things that I was really thinking about this week was the fact that a lot of times we think about how do we retain the people that we have in our church. Mm. And I think we need to switch that around. And I need to think we need to start thinking about how do we be the church in a way that will actually attract and will grow, grow the church will be a place where people can find belonging, a place where people can find hope, find peace, find those things, and, and to be able to do that. And I, I really like what you said about we, we come together to, uh, to connect 
so that we can then go and live the way that we've been we've been called to live. Yeah, that's uh, that was good. I I think beyond worrying about uh, who's here and who isn't here, um, like you refer to, um, I, I think it's important to know who we are as a body of believers and where we're going. And and the people that that resonates with and say I want to be part of that, they're actually they're not going through the motions. They're actually going somewhere. They have purpose. They know who they are and where they're going. Um, like the saying is, get the right people on the bus. And, and, and often I think people are looking for something that has purpose and meaning. I have a question that I've heard people that are not ready to come back to church post-COVID. And they say they're not ready to people yet. I'm a little unsure as how to give them help. They're not ready to come to church because they're not ready for people and they're not ready for the community side of church. How do you help people? And this is no judgment if you are at home and you are sitting there. There's no judgment that I'm just trying to... How do we help them? How do we help ourselves to be okay with the people that can't come back or aren't coming back? How do you help both sides? Because what we have here that you don't have there is community, which can get messy. Just a little, I'm, you know. <laughs> I love when you look at me. <laughs> One, I think we need to also remember that there's a lot more going on than just uh, the simple, like for those of us who like to engage in community, I think we have to realize that for some people there's more going on than just... Okay than just that. Um, uh, anxiety, the, the social anxieties, uh, different things that are happening, I think we have to be real and honest about those and realize that us pressuring people and pushing people into things right. is not going to be mm -hmm. the thing that is going to be helpful. I think uh, my goal has been to invite, to give opportunity, and to express that we miss interaction. Um, but calling and pushing and prodding is probably not going to be uh, the thing that's going to that's going to actually bring people to a place of of, uh, of relationship. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. It's, okay. it, it, so it's the phone. It's technology. So let's hear your questions. Or comments. I can just let you read, say it out loud. All right, my question was, would it be safe to say that um, the church family is more important than the biological family? And if so, what might prioritizing the church family look like in our context today? I would say that the church family is more important than the biological family because my understanding is that my allegiance to Christ supersedes any other allegiance. And, and my allegiance to Christ, now I'm going to step on some toes, but my allegiance to Christ supersedes whether I'm a Republican or a Democrat, a liberal or a conservative. And if we get that wrong, then, then there's a question about our allegiance. So, yes, uh, 
my, my time on this earth is fairly short. It's probably getting shorter. Okay? So in the light of all of eternity, uh, it's, it's just a little, it's a blip, right? Uh, so my allegiance to Christ is first, my, my, my participation in the family of faith, because this, what the church does together, is actually more important. I'm not talking about abandoning my family, but is more important than the stuff that I do with my family. And Jesus said, no one has left father and mother, and I will give them tenfold. I personally, I'm, I'm bragging, but I have family in southern Ontario, in Texas, in Nicaragua, and Chihuahua, and Guadalajara, as well as here, because I've lived in those places. And I have brothers and sisters in the Lord in those places. Uh, and that, to me, is, is significant family, right? Yeah, there was another comment back there. If you have time. <clears throat> we do. If following Christ disrupts our lives personally, it's about Christ being disruptive presence in our lives, how can the church disrupt the world around us in an attractive way, not judgmental way. So we are called, Christ is a disruptive God in our lives. How does the church be disruptive in the community? I think when we start, when we start demonstrating real and significant and authentic love to the people that we interact with on a regular basis, it will be disruptive because that is not the trend that is happening in our, in our society. When we start living in a way where we value others over ourselves, um, when we start living what uh, is often within our Anabaptist circles is called the upside-down kingdom, where we, where we choose to serve rather than to, than to be served, when we walk into those situations and do that, it will be disruptive. I'm convinced of it because of the fact that, that, um, that it's just so different from the way that the world is working. Okay. And, it doesn't, and it doesn't always look like sharing our our strongest theological statements. Sometimes the, I think the best thing we can do is, is to invite people to ask us questions about what it is. And if, if they're not interested in asking us questions, we probably shouldn't be, be uh, throwing grenades out. And, and I think it's about being a safe person. I, I found in Guadalajara that when they realized that I was safe, I wasn't going to judge them, I wasn't going to come at them, the dialogue was was tremendous uh, because there wasn't the threat. Now, I, I can love someone without necessarily agreeing with what they do or with what they believe. I can still love them. And I think we're called to love every single human being. And, and don't hear me saying that we should not share our faith. Right, That's right. not what I'm saying. But, but I think we have to... Uh, one of the things that Youth for Christ taught a lot was the idea that we're all bridge builders, relational bridge builders. Mm. We build those, those bridges of relationship, and that only happens through exactly being yeah. safe, being people who care for each other. But there are times where we have those opportunities that God brings into our relationship to be able yeah. to put a foot onto that bridge and say, okay, you know, we've been friends for a long time. Can I, can I ask you about Jesus? And if they say no, then we go. We take that foot off the bridge, and we we keep building that bridge till it's a little bit stronger. And then we try again, and we we ask those questions. And I know sometimes it takes a long time for us to be able to do that, but it's it's about that process. It's called dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Praise Band. Why don't you come up and lead us in some more singing? <laughs> 